Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, San Yong Lee from Princeton Theological Seminary. Protestants, Gender, and the Arab Renaissance in the Late Ottoman Syria, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2019, explores the encounters between American missionaries and Arab residents of Syria and Lebanon in the pre-World War I period, specifically at the height of the Nada from 1860 to 1915. For those that might be unfamiliar with Christianity and the Ottoman Empire during this time period, especially within the Syrian Protestant community, Vienna is a guide in providing an overall picture of how Protestant Christianity was received highlighting particular aspects of Syrian Protestant identity and agency that which analyzes both American missionary and Syrian Protestant discourses. Drawing on rare Arabic publications, Vienna's work challenges historiography that focuses on Western male actors. Instead, it shows that Syrian Protestant women and men were agents of their own history who sought the salvation of Syria while adapting and challenging missionary teachings. These pioneers established a critical link between evangelical religiosity and the social-cultural currents of the Nada, making possible the literary and educational achievements of the American Syria mission and the transforming Syrian society in ways that still endure today. Over the course of our conversation, we'll take a closer look at this important work what some of its key features are, how it guides the readers in understanding Christianity during the late Ottoman Syria, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this volume. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Professor Diana Womack, the author of Protestants, Gender, and the Arab Renaissance in Late Ottoman Syria. As we begin, I would like to introduce our author, Diana Womack. She is the Associate Professor of History of Religions and Interfaith Studies at Emory University, Candler School of Theology. She teaches on Christian-Muslim relations and interreligious dialogue courses such as Global Religions and Community Engagement, History and Practice of Christian-Muslim Relations, Islam in America, and Jewish-Christian-Muslim Dialogue. 
She also coordinates Candler's interfaith initiatives and has served as director of the Leadership and Multi-Faith Program established with the Evan Allen College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech. Professor Womack's research focuses on interreligious understanding, Christian-Muslim dialogue, world Christianity, and themes of gender and violence in American Protestant discourse on Islam. Her long list of publications include a wide range of issues such as Middle Eastern Protestantism, Interfaith Studies, and Protestant Missions in Ottoman Syria. Just last year, she published her second book, Neighbors, Christians and Muslims Building Community, which examines the history of Christian-Muslim relations and the practices of interreligious dialogue in the United States today. She was also recently awarded the sabbatical grant for researchers from Louisville Institute to support her upcoming book, Imaging Islam, Gender, Race, and American Protestant Encounters with Muslims. Professor Romag is also ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, USA. Welcome, Professor Romag, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thank you very much, Byung-ho and Sun. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to talk with you both. Great. Um, I wonder if you could start us off today by telling us a few words about yourself. That is, where did you grow up, uh, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study. And please feel free to mention any influential interlocutors you might have had along the way. Um, sure. I grew up in a small farming town in Missouri where my um, father was a Presbyterian pastor. And then I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota at McAllister College. My interest in studying the Middle East and Islam actually began when I was in high school. And I would give speeches about foreign policy for the speech and debate team. Um, at that time, I had an interest in international diplomacy, um, less of an interest in religion. But in college, I became a, both an international studies major and a religion major. And so at that time, I started um, studying Islam and um, learning Arabic and Hebrew. I traveled to Egypt and Israel in college. And then while I was doing my MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary, I spent a summer in Palestine. Um, and I also went on a travel seminar to Oman. So I had um, some more time in seminary to, to um, spend in the Middle East. At that point, I was considering doing a PhD, but I also felt a call to ministry and mission. Um, so after seminary, I was ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, and then my husband and I worked in Protestant schools in Lebanon for two years before I came back to Princeton and started my doctoral studies in church history. So it was that connection to Lebanon and Syria um, that that um, shaped my research in mission history and Middle Eastern Christianity to focus on that part of the Middle East instead of some other um, region. Richard Fox Young, as I think you might know, was my advisor at PTS, and he was the most influential interlocutor um, there during my PhD work. Uh, during that time, I also came to know Dr. Heather Sharkey, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, and she works on Christian-Muslim-Jewish relations, among other things. Um, so I took a course with her on that topic. And her research was influential um, for my own work. Um, a few other people I connected with as a doctoral student um, included Ellen Fleischman, who um, has now retired from the University of Dayton, um, Christine Lindner, who now teaches at Murray State University, 
Uta Zoiga, who's a, a German scholar, and David Grafton, who's at Hartford Seminary. And these are all people who had studied Syria and Lebanon, the mission history and the Protestant um, community there. Um, so they were doing that, that historical research and um, became great resources for me, too, during that time as a PhD student. Wow, thank you for um, this opportunity to get to know you better. And I would like to invite you to tell us a little bit about how you came to write the book, Protestant Gender and the Arab Renaissance in Late Ottoman Empire. So how did the idea develop? What was your research process like? And what archives and source materials did you turn to? And how was your writing experience overall? Thanks for the question. It's good to have the chance to look back at the experience, um, which, which um, included several years of work and writing. Um, so uh, this book began as my doctoral dissertation at Princeton Seminary, and I had set out to write a history of American Presbyterian missions in Ottoman Syria, um, which might be helpful to note includes both present-day Syria and Lebanon. Um, so the people that I study called themselves Syrians, even though they might be living in what is now um, contemporary Lebanon. Um, so if I say Syrians, I'm talking about Syrians back then in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, and not the, the country of Syria today. Um, so, but I wanted to approach that history from the perspectives of Syrians themselves, um, who encountered American missionaries in the late 19th century. I did my research at two main archives, which are the Presbyterian Historical Society in Philadelphia and the Library and Special Collections of the Near East School of Theology in Beirut. Um, it's also it's locally known as NEST, Near East School of Theology. Um, I did also visit several other archives, including Yale Divinity School's Mission Library and the Center for Muslim Christian Studies in Oxford, among other places. Um, so the records of the American Presbyterian missionaries in Ottoman Syria um, are held in Philadelphia, and then NEST, the Near East School of Theology in Beirut, houses the Library of the American Mission Press, as well as some of the documents on the mission that weren't sent to the U.S. Um, but almost everything in terms of what missionaries wrote about that period and their reports um, are housed in Philadelphia. So I, um, in this process, I learned about the American Syria mission, um, which became the, the Presbyterian mission in the 1870s, um, and about the earliest Syrian Protestant churches by reading the work of other scholars like Osama Maqdisi, uh, Ellen Fleischman, and Christine Lindner, who had written about this mission. And I went to the archives hoping to learn more. Um, I had planned to use publications by Syrian Protestant men during the Arab Renaissance or the Nahda of the late 19th century, because I knew from the research of those other scholars that such um, secular-focused publications existed. Because these weren't necessarily religious writings, um, but but there was enough um, uh, production of the Arabic press that I, I was certain I could find writings on that were by Syrian Protestants. Um, but you can't really know the extent of the available resources until you start digging into the archive. And at the Near East School of Theology, I found multiple publications by Syrian Protestant men, um, as well as some by women that were on both religious and secular topics. And I found copies of a very long-running Arabic periodical that was published by the American Mission, um, for which Syrians were the primary editors and authors. Um, that publication was called Anashra al-Usbuya, um, which uh, translates to the Weekly Bulletin. Um, at Nest I, in Beirut, I also found some memoirs um, uh, by early Protestants in the Syrian community. And then at the, um, the Presbyterian Historical Society, besides um, <laughs> really literally mountains of missionary records and correspondence, 
I found some letters written in Arabic and in English by Syrian Protestants, um, as well as employee records, that showed me how many Syrians were involved in running the mission's institutions. Um, so from those two main archives in Philadelphia and Beirut, and also from records on Syrian Bible women that I found in the UK, I was able to write the dissertation um, that devoted two chapters of, to the activities of Syrian women. Um, that wasn't necessarily something I um, had planned to do at the outset because I didn't know that there was much material available on women in, in 19th century Syria. Um, so I finished that in 2015. And then as I revised the dissertation into a book um, later after um, coming to Emory, where I'm cur currently teaching, I reorganized some of the material to focus more closely on the gendered power dynamics that operated in the American Syrian mission and the Syrian Protestant churches. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the writing experience overall, which you asked about, it took, um, it took place over several years during my last year and a half of graduate school, and then during my first few years of teaching at Candler School of Theology. Um, and I've been really grateful to Candler and Emory for leave time and writing support that allowed me to finish the book. Um, so time for writing is really very important to the writing experience and uh, to the completion of these publications. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to have had that time um, to turn the dissertation into a book. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your research process. And just by listening in, I mean, it seems it's definitely not a simple or just a, um, a easy process, but there's a lot of complexity. It takes time mm -hmm. and um, a lot of work. And um, it's very fascinating how you uh, explained about your insights to your excavation to the archives as well. And, and it's very fascinating. But And thank you so much for sharing uh, your experiences. Um, now, in kind of turning to the book, um, it is um, comprised of five chapters. Um, and it is richly illustrated with maps and pictures of some of the fi key figures of not only the American missionaries, but also Syrian Protestants during this time, um, which is extremely helpful, I think, because as readers, we are able to put a face um, to the names we, we read about. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, this book provides a very comprehensive appendix that lays out the detailed Syrian Protestant genealogies, um, list of American missionaries during this time, and names and publications of Syrian women, um, in which you mentioned. Um, and all this will surely encourage those interested in doing more research to do a little more digging as well. Mm -hmm. um, now, kind of diving into the introduction um, of this book, you explain how you take a historical approach employing the term enmeshed history in reconstructing the history of the missionary encounter in Ottoman Syria. And in your work, we cannot simply ignore the the importance of this time period that we are kind of stepping into, the Nada, um, also known as the Arab Awakening or Arab, Arab Renaissance. Um, for our audience that might be kind of unfamiliar to this era, uh, do you mind elaborating more on the significance of this period and kind of unpacking some of its layers and complexities? Um, what did this period or movement kind of entail and what are some of the crucial aspects that we should know um, about this period? Thanks. That's a great question. And I um, appreciate your attention to the context um, because the Protestants that I studied in Syria were part of the broader context of what was happening in the region. Um, so, And they were very much a part of the Nahda or the Arab Renaissance, um, which began in the late 19th century and lasted into the 20th. 
it was a time of sociocultural and political change across the Middle East. Um, so not just in Syria, but you can look at Palestine or you, a little bit later, or you can look at Egypt early on and, and see the Arab Renaissance there. But in Ottoman Syria, it focused on building um, a modern Syrian nation. There were political facets of the Nahda, um, which led to the Arab nationalist movements of the early 20th century. But my research focused on the cultural facets of this Arab Renaissance, and particularly on the intellectual currents of um, the production of the modern Arabic press. Um, so in Beirut, by the 1870s, Arabic presses there had become a center for literary production in Ottoman Syria. Um, this included nonfiction books, books of poetry, novels, numerous newspapers and journals um, that covered current events as well as um, you know, scientific discoveries and, um, and articles on literature. So anything that you can possibly think of um, was being published in, in Beirut beginning in the 1870s. Um, although the movement, the Nahda, focused on modernization and progress and changing society, Nahdawi leaders understood themselves as, also as reviving Arab culture, um, not dismissing the greatness of Arab civilization, um, which they really lifted up in their writings, um, not dismissing those things for Western forms, um, but uh, simply reviving that culture and modernizing it. Um, so in Beirut, the earliest individuals who were involved in the literary production of the Nahda were disproportionately Protestants most of whom had been educated in Protestant schools and had the opportunity to contribute to the Nahda publications, um, first um, through the Arabic production of the American Mission Press. Um, so many of them may have gone, gone on to publish um, through other presses um, or outside the missionary circles, um, but they had some of them had their first opportunities to do so at the Mission Press, which um, was encouraged by the Syrian Protestant community and by the missionaries there. Um, and I should note that both Syrian men and women were involved in the mission press and in the larger movement of the Nahda. Um, fewer women, as you might imagine, than men, but a significant um, number of women um, for this period. And that was, I think, a major change in terms of the literary production and cultural output um, that was publicly shared in Syria at the time. Um, so many of these Syrian Protestants wrote for or edited or founded independent periodicals um, later that were not connected to the mission and not focused specifically on religious mat uh, matters. So there's a, that connection to the mission, but there's also um, quite a bit of uh, the, the Arab Renaissance as a whole um, was much, much larger than what was happening in the Protestant community or in the Arab, um, the American mission press. Um, but I, I do think that these Protestants were very much a part of the Nahda and they were not just contributing to it, um, but they were actually influencing some of its currents and early on um, many of those who were most influential um, happened to be Protestant because they had the resources at their disposal to, um, to participate in Arabic press production. Uh, thank you for that detailed uh, insight into the Nahda. Um, your explanation really uh, helps me and I'm sure uh, our audience to understand the context to which your book um, addresses. And within this framework of the Nahda, I think what seems to be a significant issue that you draw out are questions regarding identity and its connection to conversion experiences, it's the process of religious change of what it means to be Protestant or evangelical in modern Syria. So you asked the questions, if I quote your questions, what did one become Protestant in the sectarian landscape of late Ottoman Syria? And what did evangelical faith mean during the Arab Renaissance? 
what I was fascinated by and interested to know more about was your approach in your conceptualization of conversion in this context. Could you tell us more on what model or approach you used to understand conversion and how that helped you to interpret the Syrian narrative in American missionary discourses on religious change? Um, yes, yeah, so I um, used the stage model um, uh, from Louis Rambo, um, which was published first in his book, but also described in a shorter essay that he co-authored with Charles Farhadian. Um, this was um, something that was being used um, by scholars of world Christianity to, um, to examine and understand how religious change was happening in various communities throughout the world. And so I found it to be flexible um, and pretty adaptable to the Syrian context as well um, that I was studying. Um, I thought that I would just read a quote um, from the that comes from my book on page 31, and this is from Rambo and Farhadian's um, essay, Converting Stages of Religious Change, because I think it may be the best way to um, to just describe what this model looks like briefly. Um, so they say, so they look at seven um, seven points of connection that may come up in a um, in a conversion experience, although not all seven might be present everywhere. Um, so it's flexible in that sense; it doesn't have to go in order. And some of the steps um, or stages might be skipped. Um, But this is what they say. Um, So first is context. Context is the overall environment in which change takes place. Contextual factors either facilitate or constrain change. The crisis stage is second, and that is generally a rupture in the taken-for-granted world that triggers um, the third stage, the quest stage, in which persons actively seek new ways of confronting their predicament. Encounter is the contact between questing persons and the advocate of a new alternative. So encounter is the next stage. Um, And then the fifth stage is interaction, an intensification of the process in which the advocates and potential converts negotiate changes in thoughts, feelings, and actions. Stage six is commitment, a phase in which persons decide to devote their life to a new spiritual orientation. And finally comes the consequences, uh, the stage that involves cumulative effects of various experiences, actions, and beliefs that either facilitate or hinder converting. Um, So keeping in mind the Syrian context, I use this model to look at ways that missionaries talked about conversion, and then I analyzed the accounts of conversion that were written by several prominent Syrian Protestant men. And um, and I found most of these stages present in some way in each of their narratives. But what I found particularly interesting and thought that I would note here is that although there was an encounter and a deepening interaction with American missionaries, the Protestant conversion narratives didn't necessarily lift up the missionaries as the advocate through whom they were introduced to the evangelical faith. Um, so the stage model, model notes that there's going to be an advocate. You must have an encounter with something different, right? in order to experience change. Um, But the advocate for these Protestants was not the missionaries themselves, but their commitment to Protestantism came, um, in their words, through contact with the Bible itself, um, through reading it independently and making their own choice. And so they really emphasized um, that sort of freedom of choice um, outside the bounds of any human person who would lead you toward change. I think that this fits with Protestant theology, um, so the same sort of theology that missionaries would have been teaching. So it's not a huge divergence um, from that um, and on the emphasis of vernacular reading of the Bible. And yet the Syrian Protestants presented their conversion stories differently, I think, than American missionaries did. 
Um, so I saw in American missionary discourses around conversion some uh, more expressions of cultural imperialism, um, as if there was a particular American brand of Protestantism that Syrians must embrace and must strive um, uh, toward before they could be counted as being truly converted. Um, and although Americans, uh, the American missionaries believed in the power of the Bible when read by unbelievers, um, and this, you know, this underlied uh, their effort at um, publishing and distributing the Bible all across the Arab world, um, they tended to feel that they themselves were indispensable to this work. And I think this um, was to the detriment of an independently run Syrian church that had control of its own mission activities. Um, so in the Syrian Protestant conversion experiences, missionaries were present but not really central. And in American missionaries' narratives of, of these experiences, um, they were indispensable. And so I think that you see a, um, a different emphasis in the agency, uh, the agent of change, um, in comparing the Syrian accounts to the American accounts. Thank you uh, for sharing um, the, your insight on meaning of conversion in your approach. And yeah, it is really interesting to hear the differences between missionaries' perception and uh, the Syrian Protestants' perception. Uh, a brief follow-up question in regard to the conversion narrative is, I really appreciated how you highlighted the agents of religious change. In these narratives of Syrian Protestant converts, while the converts acknowledge the role of the American missionaries, uh, the converts is specifically in Leia a uh, Barakat's narrative also credited uh, their own Syrian ancestors who brought the gospel out from the land of the Bible. So do you mind talking a little bit more uh, on this issue, on the importance of these narratives, on how formative these conceptualizations of agency played in the forming of the Syrian Protestant identity? Thanks for the question. Um, so I think first you see the independent choice that I described before um, through Bible reading, the, um, the ability to choose for oneself, um, whether to become an evangelical Protestant um, or not. And that's apart from missionary control. I also see evidence um, both in the conversion stories and in the other actions of, of the Syrian Protestant community throughout this time period. Um, the use of that agency and resistance to missionary control. Uh, this comes up in, in um, chapter uh, four, for example. Um, in the in the Beirut church controversy. And so I think it is a, a question of power um, and control and who really has the agency, um, both to determine what it means to be an evangelical Protestant in, um, in Syria, and then who has the more sort of logistical or practical control of the churches and the schools and the, um, the Protestant institutions in the region. And so that comes up several times, and I think that you could find parallels throughout the world in various mission contexts where local Christians, um, you know, have the agency to become to independently run their their institutions, um, but sometimes have uh, the missionaries resist and don't wish to give over that control. Um, I also saw agency for change in their own society, and this this includes um, kind of that that last stage of the conversion narrative, the consequences, which is often at least for these prominent converts, um, becoming evangelists or preachers or teachers um, themselves. And so that there's that, that um, feeling empowered um, by the gospel or by God to go out and change society um, and, and to preach the gospel. Um, but then I think there's also the agency for other sorts of change. So cultural change, the bringing of um, new forms of education or um, the spreading of literature that might not necessarily be religious or might not be evangelistic. 
Um, but that hope of changing the society, both religiously and culturally and politically. And so it, it sort of went beyond, I think, um, just the American missionaries' hope to, to transform the faith of Syria, um, but to really change uh, the, the society. Um, and then, um, as you said, son, in Leah Barakat's case, there's this reminder that Christianity came from this region. It's not indigenously uh, European or American, right? And I mean, the Middle East is a unique place where, where Christians there can say that to Western missionaries. Um, and so this is a way of, I think, um, asserting agency that is much deeper and uh, much more deeper historically than um, the American missionaries' um, own faith. And, um, and I think it's also worth noting that most of the Syrian Protestants and most who converted to Protestantism were actually already Christian before they met the missionaries. Um, so their change, their, their change of religious affiliation is called a conversion, um, but they're really moving from one, one form or tradition of Christianity um, to another. And I think that that was, that was also important um, to note that the missionaries aren't bringing a new faith to the region, but maybe a, just a new manifestation. Um, of that faith. Um, the last thing that, that I thought about was that, of course, American missionaries themselves have agency, and I don't mean to deny their impact. Um, but my research aims to show that not all the credit for building a Syrian Protestant church should be given to them, or not all the credit for, for influencing um, some of the changes in the Arab Renaissance should be given to um, the Americans. But often Americans and Syrians were at least equal partners in terms of the work that they were doing. Um, and perhaps um, just as often, Syrians had more role in the success of the churches and the schools and the mission press publications than the Americans did um, because they had the, the facility in Arabic and the knowledge of their culture um, to, um, to do some of the work that Americans uh, simply couldn't do. So the Syrian voices and experiences and contributions need to be recognized. And often these were not in missionary port reports or they at least were not prominent in those missionary reports or in the subsequent histories that relied on mission reports. Oh, thank you for that thorough answer. I think, um, in a way, what you've you know, showed us is exactly what um, uh, scholars in the field of world Christianity is interested in and um, studies and research on. And yeah, it, it's really fascinating in the dynamics um, that, uh, that is portrayed in the Syrian Protestant community as well. Um, now, kind of uh, segueing into our second chapter, the second chapter of your book, you pay careful attention um, to the output of the American Mission Press and the contributions of the Syrian Protestant editors and authors, kind of highlighting the collaboration between the missionaries and Syrian Protestants and how the uh, American Mission Press served as a platform for Syrian Protestants to participate fully in uh, social, cultural, and religious discourses of the Nada. One of the noticeable and important collaborations we can see is through the publishing of the earliest uh, modern Arabic periodicals called the Al-Nashra. Um, in light of the importance of the Nashra, um, I do want to highlight one figure that might kind of help uh, underscore the influences of print culture during this time, and that is Ibrahim Isa al-Hurani, um, in which you dub him as the Nad Nadawi uh, Protestant pioneer. Um, do you mind sharing uh, about Al-Hurani and not only his role as the editor of Al-Nashra, uh, but his vision and contributions in which he employed Nashra into a forum for theological debates uh, with the papers of other uh, Christian denominations in Beirut during this time? 
Sure. Um, yeah. So Ibrahim al-Hurani was a really important um, for the Protestant Arab um, production in Beirut and um, contributed, I think, independently of that, um, that mission-related work to the Nakhda in various ways. Um, so he was, I think, um, a, a great example of a Nahdawi intellectual. Um, he edited several journals um, besides um, Nashar al-Uspuya, the mission journal, um, wrote books of poetry, um, which were really influential. And, and um, surprisingly, I think because he is Protestant, he's less well-known than people like um, uh, Khalil al-Gibran um, or Amin Rihani, who were writing poetry. And some of the forms of poetry that he used were actually published in Nashra um, earlier um, than, than some of the, the um, well-known forms of, of, of that same sort of poetry were published by, um, by people like Rihani or Gibran. Um, so I think that he is someone who has been overlooked, at least in the, the English-speaking scholarly world um, that, that is looking at um, the Arab Renaissance, although um, there are at least Syrians uh, and, and Lebanese Protestants um, who know of him. Um, so he, um, in terms of his impact on, um, on Nahdawi Protestant culture as a pioneer, he was the editor in charge of uh, the Nashra from 1880 to 1915. So that, um, that mission periodical was always under the supervision of uh, a missionary man. Um, and most of these men did know Arabic pretty well, but their, their, ri- their written Arabic was not um, of the quality that most of them could write for, uh, for this periodical. Or if they wrote, it had to be corrected by their Syrian associates. Um, so I, um, I credit him for almost all of the, the success um, and the continuation of this periodical, um, which in fact is still being published. Um, by the the Presbyterian Synod in um, in Lebanon today, but in any case, from 1880 to 1915, and I think he he died a year later in 1916, I believe he was um, the chief editor of the Nashra, and this is also really during the period of the height of the Nafta. Um, so I'll just note some, uh, maybe I'll note two things that he did. Um, the first was the inclusion of women as authors in the Nashra began in the 1880s. And so as editor, um, I believe that he was um, responsible, at least partly, for inviting these Protestant, Syrian Protestant women to write and to publish. Um, some of them wrote in, in their actual publications in the Nahdra, sort of thanking um, the men of the community for inviting them. So he wasn't specifically named, um, but as someone who had control of this periodical, I think that he had a role in, um, in offering the opportunity to these women to write beginning in the 1880s. And so that was really significant because it wasn't, um, besides a few, a few women who were publishing um, sometimes in, like in the, the periodicals, maybe um, edited by their, their husbands or their fathers, um, when, it wasn't until the 1880s that women were um, publishing in the, in the Nahda press. Um, and then the second thing is, is what you mentioned as you were asking the question, and that was his, um, his role in these Nahda debates and the theological debates. Um, so one thing about the context of the Arab Renaissance that I didn't uh, explain fairly, fully earlier is that um, there were very prominent debates in the Nahda presses um, where some topic, you know, some topic would be raised and there would be um, a person on one side and a person on the other side. And in two different journals or maybe three different Arabic journals, they would address this question. And so it would be expected that someone who wanted to follow this debate wouldn't just read one periodical, but would have to subscribe or, or find you know, all, both of them or all three of them. 
and read back and forth and see how this conversation was going. So, um, of course, they didn't have um, you know, television at the time. You can imagine the debate on the screen. This is a debate across the pages of the press, and it required you to, to read um, widely in the Arabic press. And so Ibrahim Hurani was part of this, and he used um, that model uh, theologically to debate um, uh, questions of Protestant theology in contrast to Catholic theology and to Orthodox theology. And so one of these debates um, that, I, uh, that I highlighted in my book was on um, the question of the second uh, commandment and um, the Protestant accusation that both Catholics and um, uh, Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox, I should say, were violating the second commandment by using either statues or icons in worship. Um, interestingly, this debate um, looks to have been started between the Catholic and the Orthodox presses. And then Hurani, who was reading widely in those publications, um, began an editorial commenting on that question and asserting, of course, that the Protestant view of the second commandment was correct and that, that statues and icons shouldn't be used. Um, so I think like in, in part, you can look at that debate and just say, oh, this is a religious debate and the Protestants are trying to, um, to press their case and they're being really hostile to the Catholics and to the Orthodox. I think that was part of it. I do think that he had a religious motive. But I think also some of these debates were actually staged so that the editors would say, hey, why don't you press this point? I'll press this point. And, you know, they all I mean, I think they all firmly believed in their theological view. But it was a way to bring readers um, to begin paying more attention to these religious presses and, and make their own decision. So if some of them chose for the Protestant case, then then Hurani would um, be happy, of course. But I think it's a variation on the kinds of debates that were that were happening across the Nahda press outside um, outside the Protestant spheres, and so it's an interesting um, it's an interesting form of religious debate that hasn't necessarily been treated as part of the Arab Renaissance um, because it's religious. And I think that um, because Hurani was so involved in other forms of um, Arab Renaissance writing, poetry, and and studies of science, um, that he was playing on that theme and using it um, sort of to Protestant advantage in his, in his work and in, in the Nasha. Thank you for uh, making a history so vivid and alive by introducing this gifted and talented and passionate man. And uh, in chapter, moving to chapter three, uh, in uh, the third chapter, you turn to women and the chapter begins with, I call it a hall of fame or a genealogy of the Nadawi Protest, Protestant women. So you listed the pioneers and successors in giving birth and rise to the new womanhood. So what struck me is that the Syrian Protestant writers, women writers, reminded me of the early Korean Protestant elite women in many ways, as they share similar life path, such mm. as they were educated in mission schools. After graduation, they served as teachers in those schools and claimed their voices as writers. And these educated Protestant women were often described, particularly in the Korean context, as pioneers who created pathways for women to claim their spaces in public spheres. But I found your interpretation was very interesting and insightful as you uh, describe and highlight that these Protestant women, especially the fourth generation, performed their new womanhood in the intimate space of the home rather than in public spheres. So would you tell us more about these women and their performances in domestic spaces? 
Thanks for the question. I really appreciate the comparison between Syrian and Korean women. And um, I think that, you know, that a, a global sort of comparative study of what women were doing in the same time period in different regions is necessarily is warranted. Um, and, and I think you're right that, um, that these women, um, you know, were educated in Protestant schools and mission schools, um, and they were changing society, but in, in very strategic ways, I think. Um, and so in terms of, um, in this particular chapter, I'm looking at women who were either writing for, um, for the Nashra or other Protestant um, publications, or who had given public addresses that were then um, published. So for them, uh, of course, they were operating somewhat in the public sphere, um, but they also, um, they, they certainly described the home um, as, as a, you know, the domestic space as a space in which um, the Protestant woman could sort of fulfill her calling. But I will say the home sometimes straddled like what we would consider to be both the public and private sphere. So for example, one could host a literary society or an evangelistic society in one's home. A woman could do that. And then she could stand up and give a speech um, to those friends or colleagues who were gathered there. And so, so it's a domestic space, but it's being used in slightly different way, not just um, you know, the arrangement of the house and the raising of the children. But um, this you know, Protestant woman is inviting the public maybe into her own space and then influencing it that way. So I think there's an interesting sort of negotiation of what public and private means when you expand what can actually happen in the home. Um, I think teaching is also an in-between space, whether it's the, the teaching of the mother um, you know, to the children in the home, or many of these um, Syrian Protestant women, um, most of them were single, some of them continued teaching um, when they were married, but who would teach in Protestant schools, um, in mission schools or in independent Protestant schools. And I would see that as sort of an in-between space um, it's a, a private school in, in some sense, but you have a sort of a public audience and you can influence society that way. Um, and often um, either teachers or graduates of these schools would give speeches um, at school events such as graduations or also at church meetings. Um, so not in worship, but in Sunday school, you know, in the Sunday school hall. And in that, um, and in that sense, I think they're extending the women's space to that location but they're reaching a larger audience than just their than just their um, immediate family or extended family, which um, which earlier in this period would have been um, you know the extent to which a woman should have influence within her own home and family. So I think the domestic space is important, um, but it doesn't just mean one's own family. Um, there can be an influence beyond that. I think also writing is an activity um, that that negotiates those boundaries, so it can be done in private. You know, perhaps that that woman writer has never left her home, but now she can share her voice publicly. I, I think because these women were educated in mission schools, they weren't just confined to the domestic space. But it was a way to, to reach a much larger audience and often an audience of men. Um, so these these Nahda journals, um, women were readers, certainly. But I think still the majority in the late 19th century of the, the Arabic readers of the periodicals were men. Um, so a woman who wouldn't feel comfortable you know, speaking to a, a, a man that she didn't know could write something and influence his, you know, his um, intellectual religious decisions um, without actually having personal contact. So again, kind of a negotiating of the space. Um, so sometimes I think that the claim or commission to do work in domestic spaces, which, which I did find um, that women writers were talking about this, the role of the woman in the home and the influence of the children, 
um, the commission to do work in domestic space actually opened up work in the public sphere. Um, it can also be seen in the work of the Bible women, um, which comes up in a later chapter. Um, and they, um, they were supposed to be working in domestic spaces, but they actually had a wider public reach. And so I think, um, so I, I think the last thing that I will say is that kind of the language of domestic work and attaching that to women, women's work, uh, women's work for women, women's work in the home, I think um, drew on some traditional language to make it palatable um, for a wider audience that might not quite be ready for a woman to really be having an influence in the church or in the society. Um, but I think it actually opened pathways um, for that work. So teaching as a new profession is something, um, you know, as it was an important way for women throughout the world um, to have more of a, a public role outside the home. And then um, women's work as authors and journalists and activists, um, those sorts of things. So I think you can say, um, you know, don't you want your, your daughter to be educated so she can be a wonderful mother? Um, and that convinces those who traditionally think women are only supposed to grow up and be mothers of the children of the nation, right? Um, but that education can do many more things. And I think the, the Syrian women authors who are saying these things knew that. So the aim is to get women and girls educated. Um, and that is a, a way of changing society. And I think sometimes the kind of language that they use, which might sound very conservative and traditional to us, um, focusing on the domestic spaces, uh, might, might be a strategy for some of them uh, to kind of open pathways for many other women um, that would, you know, could come through education. So I think it's a tricky question, but there's really this navigation back and forth between public and private spaces and what one can do to open a pathway, um, but not be too radical so that the whole movement would be um, shut down. Thank you, uh, Professor Omak. But in kind of uh, continuing our discussion on the roles of women and women's writing, um, and in chapter three, you also discuss this rich collection of women's writing, such as the Tarbia literature, um, educational advocacy pieces, and sermonic texts. Um, I remember an archivist saying that every historian dreams and hopes that there is a dusty box that no one has ever touched. Would you say, um, would you say that you lived the historian's dream in this project? Um, <laughs> would you tell us a little bit more about how you located the text produced by women? Um, and kind of my main question here is about your analysis of the text. Um, this chapter successfully parses out the multiple identities entangled and enmeshed in Nadawi Protestant womanhood. Would you elaborate a bit more about this womanhood as reflected in the writings? Um, so to your first question, um, I have to admit that looking through a dusty box that no one has touched is um, certainly an exciting prospect um, for a historian. It may not you know, sound exciting for anyone else. Um, but in reality, even in archival materials um, that other scholars have seen, many things can go overlooked. Um, so the best thing would be the dusty box. But the next best thing would be, you know, just abundant materials um, that one can go through. And finding unique materials, I think, is great. But if you take a unique approach to using the material available, um, that's also important. So there's a lot of things that you can glean from mission archives, for example, um, that, that haven't necessarily come up in previous scholarship because those scholars weren't taking the same sort of um, interpretive approach as you might take. Um, so in my work, I tried to piece together small bits of information that I found in the archives about Syrian Protestant women's lives. Um, so you certainly wouldn't find uh, a full-length um, 
uh, conversion narrative by a Syrian Protestant um, woman, um, at least not in Arabic, or I didn't find it. Maybe someone else will find it when they when they come across that dusty box that no one has looked at. Um, but but small pieces of these women's lives can be pieced together to, to at least show part of their story. Um, so I didn't know much about the text that Syrian Protestant women wrote for the American Mission Press, for example, because not much had been written about them. Um, and finding those texts as part of my uh, research process was partly a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Um, so d- uh, during my doctoral research, Dr. Christine Lindner was working at the Neary School of Theology in Beirut Library um, and had just reorganized the Arabic Mission Press Library, where I found several books w- um, written by women. It wasn't something that I could have found out easily before I went to Beirut. Um, but at Nest, I also had access to the mission periodical that we've just been discussing, um, the Nushra, um, which is really only available there and a few other um, libraries in, in Beirut. Um, and I think maybe the British Library has some copies of it. So it's another thing, if it's not digitized, you have to go to the library to look at. And it wasn't archival research necessarily. Um, but through looking at these publications, I realized that women were writing for the periodical. Um, actually, because I flipped through the pages and found pieces signed by women, there, weren't, um, there wasn't an index organized by author. So it really was a matter of flipping through the pages and finding women's names and seeing what they were writing. Um, so that was a surprise and, and a delight to find that women were writing more um, for Protestant publications than, than I had thought. Um, but I can't necessarily say that there was a systematic research process there. But it's really a matter of just going to the archive or the library and seeing what's available. And then on your second question about Nahdawi Protestant womanhood, I looked at what Syrian Protestant women were writing during the Nahda and also what they were doing, um, so how they were performing their identity as authors and activists or public speakers and teachers. And this chapter in particular, um, chapter three, focused specifically on women's writing and their published addresses. Um, So it certainly doesn't claim to represent all Protestant women during the Nahda. Not all of them were writing or, or could write well. But, but the women's writings for the mission press offer a good sense of how they wanted their readers to understand what it meant to be a Protestant woman in this period. So it shows what they believed and how they performed their identity, but also how they wanted to influence um, how they wanted to influence others. And as you said, the identity was complex, and the Nahdawi women weren't all in absolute agreement about their roles in society. Um, so they had they had their own debates about what a woman's proper role was. Um, but their writing on the subject of womanhood tended to focus on the importance of educating women and girls, um, and also on the proper way of raising children, or tarbiya. Um, it was a task that most of these women assigned to the mother, so they were sort of directing their writings to mothers, um, but some of them also charged the father with this responsibility. So you can see a slight difference in opinion of whose role it is to do this sort of domestic-focused work. Um, there were also key themes of the women's nahda outside of Protestant circles, um, but some Protestant women also use the Arabic press to publish what I call sermonic texts. So I look at sort of the, um, the writings that aren't really religiously focused, but then when I look at the women's writings in, um, in the Nashra that focused on uh, religious questions, these include, um, I, I consider all of them to be forms of sermons or a way that a woman at that time could, um, could deliver a sermon to a uh, um, an audience of men and women without being able to stand in the church and preach. So they offered spiritual guidance, prophetic proclamations, and interpretation of biblical texts. Um, and because all Protestants were supposed to be Bible readers and were called to share the Christian message, 
um, then this sort of activity could appropriately be included as part of um, Nahdawi Protestant womanhood. So they weren't necessarily transgressing the boundaries that their community set for them um, because they were doing sort of what, the, like what Protestant theology called them to do, um, but they had to do it in slightly different ways in something that was labeled as a public speech instead of a sermon or in, in writing um, that interpreted the Bible, um, but was, you know, it was written, it wasn't spoken. And so that was a way to sort of um, transcend those boundaries that were, um, that were set for them. And so um, just as I, I considered Ibrahim Hurani's theological debates in, his, um, in the Nashra as part of this larger Arab Renaissance discourse, I also see these um, women's sermonic texts as kind of uh, expanding the boundaries of the Nahda and showing some of its religious aspects um, that other scholars have, have not necessarily paid as much attention to. Thank you for um, illuminating this fascinating part of um, the Dawi Protestant women's history. And as we move to chapter four, it does not feel right um, if we don't talk about the 1902 pamphlet. So here, please allow me to bring something off the topic, but I promise that I'll come back to our chapter. If you are familiar with the musical Hamilton, the show describes the Reynolds pamphlet as a writing that Alexander Hamilton shifted the power dynamics and the political tension surrounding him to save himself, but at the expense of his own reputation and his political career. So the show highlights this pamphlet as the key that changed the course of the American nation building history. So as I promised, coming back to chapter four, uh, it seems that the anti-missionary pamphlet of 1902 is a similar kind in a way, while they're completely different in many ways. Um, So similar to the Hamilton's pamphlet in terms of its intention and impact. So would you tell us more about the 1902 pamphlet, its importance in your discussion and narratives, the the native agency of male Nadawi Protestants? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, I love the Hamilton musical, and you can often hear um, my children playing the music in the background at my house. But I hadn't thought of the comparison between um, the 1902 pamphlet um, by Beirut Protestants and, and Hamilton's um, Reynolds pamphlet. Um, so it's a really interesting comparison. And I think that you're right that there are some similarities, um, perhaps not so much in the content of the two pamphlets, but I would say in the impact that the, uh, the written word at this time when circulated widely could have on a community or even on an entire nation. Um, so, so both in Hamilton's time and in Beirut in the, 19, the 19th century, um, you know, publications could be very easily circulated and either read or read out loud um, to influence a large number of individuals. And so in the case of the 1902 pamphlet that made accusations um, uh, about missionaries, um, so it was accusing rather than refuting, which was um, what, what Hamilton was doing. Um, in, in that case, I think, um, although uh, I only found evidence of, of a few pamphlets being published, you know, perhaps hundreds or perhaps thousands were published and circulated. Um, I never found quite how many were published, but even having one copy to be shown to missionaries um, is a threat because thousands more could be circulated, um, both to, and it was published in, in English. So it was for a specific audience. It wasn't necessarily for, um, for Protestants in Beirut, although some of them would have been able to read English. It was actually for American readers at home to, to kind of condemn um, the missionary enterprise for failing to do what it had intended. Um, to do. And so accusing um, mostly missionary men 
of overstepping their authority, of controlling the Protestant church and individual preachers and teachers and employees. Um, and there are also some allegations of sexual abuse. And so there are really some, um, some very um, severe accusations um, that are made that, that could certainly sway the American reading public's opinion of at least this particular um, American Syria mission. So the, the practical impact that it had, um, because I think the pamphlet was being used as sort of um, as sort of a way to influence what was happening in Beirut, um, if it wasn't uh, republished and circulated widely, it was a way of sort of um, for, for Syrian Protestant men to assert their control over their own churches and communities and to resist American missionary control. Um, so I think the practical impact it had was not actually in, in spreading these accusations, although I suspect some of, the, some of them are true. Um, but um, the practical impact is that it contributed to the reality that the first Arab Protestant church, which was established in Beirut, became in the end not a Presbyterian church, but a congregational church in the aftermath of this pamphlet controversy. And in this case, I think that op um, opting for congregational polity um, was a way to move outside male missionary control and for Syrian Protestants and specifically Syrian Protestant men to become independent in the running of their own churches. Um, so there may have been a, you know, Congregationalists and Presbyterians are both part of the Reformed tradition. The theology is basically the same. Um, the, the people who produced this pamphlet weren't really differing with the missionaries in terms of their theology, but in terms of the, the way that the church was structured. And they found that congregational polity would give um, individual Syrian pastors more control over their own churches or the actual congregation itself, the Syrian congregation, would have more control over the churches. They didn't want to be part of what Presbyterians have, which is um, a presbytery or a synod, so these wider governing bodies that might have control over churches. And at that time, the missionaries had control of the presbyteries and, and the synods. Um, so I think it's an interesting way to use um, a Protestant polity um, to, to resist missionary control. Um, and I think the, the last thing I might say, um, my friend and colleague, Christine Lindner, um, writes about uh, the Syrian Protestant circle um, in, in Beirut. And she says, at the center of that circle are missionary men. And then, you know, there's where the power is located. And as you get farther out into the circle, people are more on the margins. And so with missionary men at the center, um, the next step would be missionary women and Syrian Protestant men, and particularly those who were ordained. And, and, and depending on the circumstance, their role or their amount of authority and power was sort of negotiated back and forth. So in terms of like authority to preach, um, the Syrian, you know, ordained Syrian male had that um, in, in terms of church decisions, but in terms of like how money was used or how certain uh, mission institutions were operated, um, missionary, uh, Protestant missionary women, American missionary women had a lot more control. They were running schools. Um, they had a little bit more say in mission decisions than Syrian Protestant men. And then sort of on the outskirts, you'll find the Syrian Protestant women who really have no institutional control, um, but actually in some cases um, have a lot more influence uh, than they do, you know, actual um, authority. So it's interesting to think about that that imagery and the way that in, in this case, in the Beirut um, controversy and in the pamphlet controversy, it was mostly a matter of men negotiating their power. And while the women were sort of in the background and they were strategically used at certain points 
um, both by the Syrian men and by the American men to, to kind of um, assert their points and reassert their authority. So it's a really interesting question of the gender dynamics and how that operates actually between men, even when women aren't as actively involved in a controversy. Oh, thank you uh, for that insight on the dynamics of what this pamphlet meant uh, during this time. Now, um, we want to look at the last chapter, chapter five um, in your book. And um, in a way, I noticed that this chapter is dedicated to the Syrian Bible woman. Um, I think you briefly mentioned before as well. It is a kind of a pleasant surprise to see growing scholarly interest in Bible women in the field of world Christianity. Um, my first podcast here was also, um, I did a section on Korean Bible women on Kiel's you um, work on Christianity in South Korea. Um, what I really appreciated about your approach to Syrian Bible women was that you shed light on not just what they were asked to do, or, but who they thought they were and what they thought they were actually doing. Um, here we see a clear thread of throughout the book, this identity and a gap or tension between various um, identities. Um, your focus on the Bible woman's self-claimed identity opens up a new way of understanding the Syrian Bible woman and the early Syrian Protestant church. So could you tell us more about um, the Syrian Bible woman's identity? And it would be great if you could help our audience to understand who the Bible women were and in general and lead us to the Syrian Bible women, the um, Mubashrats. Thanks. Um, so I think a little bit of history might help first to answer your question. Um, so the the office, what I call the office of Bible women, and also James Tenetti, who writes about Bible women in India, he, ta- he calls this the office of Bible women. It came about um, in the UK, in London. Um, a woman named Ellen Raynard in the mid-19th century founded the London Bible and Domestic Female Mission, and um, British women um, mostly, uh, you know, more upper class, middle to upper class, um, more educated women became Bible women to serve the London poor. And so their role is to read the Bible and to teach the Bible in the homes of um, poor British women who who may not um, have much knowledge of the Protestant faith. Um, so that was the beginning. Um, but soon thereafter, um, British women began supporting Bible women around the world through the British and Foreign Bible Society. And the, this, um, this financial support, I think it was the payment of maybe 12 pounds a year. That was the salary of a Bible woman almost everywhere. So it was sort of standardized. Um, and this could be given to Bible women um, who are working with British missionaries, but also with other Protestant missionaries, including Americans. Um, so in Syria, the British Syrian mission began in the early 1860s. Um, it was begun by a British woman named Elizabeth Thompson, and she was the first Um, that I found in Syria to hire and employ Bible women. And that's kind of following the model of Ellen Raynard and the London Bible and domestic female mission. Um, So this is why my research took me to the U.S., um, because this small organization that was entirely um, women-led, the British Syrian mission, um, it operated in conjunction with the American Syrian mission, or or they sort of um, supplemented each other. So in a place where the American mission would have a boys' school, the British Syrian mission would have a women's school. But the population that was attending those schools or the population um, from those schools, perhaps, that might have converted to Protestantism, they would attend the same churches. And those were the churches that were founded and run by the American Syrian mission. Um, and so all of the, there, there was no um, male counterpart in the British Syrian mission. And actually the American missionaries made sure that that was the case 
um, because they didn't want Anglican men coming in and forming Anglican churches and sort of stealing the, the Protestants or stealing, you know, the, those Syrians who might convert to Protestantism. Um, they wanted them to be Presbyterian or at least reformed. Um, and so this was a woman-led mission. It didn't found churches. And it employed really a wide number of Bible women. Um, the American mission employed some, but the British Syrian mission employed the majority of the Syrian Bible women in the 19th century, um, uh, continuing into the mid-20th century. So these women are employed to read the Bible to other women in their homes, um, but de facto, they're really being sent out to interpret the Bible. They want to encourage um, women to convert to Protestantism. Um, although in the theological views of most of the sending agencies, um, you know, both in Syria and around the world, preaching was solely a male office of ministry. Um, I believe in most cases, even in the late 19th century, when the first Bible women were, were beginning their work, um, these women understood themselves to be preaching the Bible, uh, to doing something that was pretty much parallel to what male preachers and pastors were doing, but in a different context. And now I know in some regions of the world and some mission contexts, um, both Western missionaries and the local churches themselves authorize Bible women to preach, even within churches. I, I've read um, some studies of Bible women in South Africa, for example, that are preaching alongside um, a male preacher in the church. And I think um, in, in China and perhaps even in Korea, um, women were more publicly understood within the churches and in the mission, these Bible women, as being preachers. Um, but in Syria, it was a little bit different because the preaching office and the pastoral office was so, um, it was really controlled by the American missionary men um, who very rarely even wanted to, even felt that Syrian men were worthy to be ordained as full pastors. And that was something that came up in the, the Beirut um, controversy in the previous chapter. Um, but I find um, that despite this, this sort of hesitancy to, um, to officially recognize that Bible women had a preaching role, not just a reading role, um, I find in the Arabic term used for Bible women, which is mubashara, an important clue to these, Bible, um, these Syrian Bible women's identity. So mubasharat is the, is the plural. Um, but the singular mubashara is not a direct translation of the English word Bible woman. Um, there would be a different Arabic word for that. Um, but rather, it's the feminine form of the word um, for a male evangelist or preacher, which is mubashir. So it's, it's a feminine form of something that already existed, literally one who preaches the good news. Um, so in, in using and applying this term to the Syrian Bible woman, they were understood not merely as women who read the Bible to other women and maybe answer questions, but as preachers and evangelists. Um, so this was a, an office of ministry, um, it, even if it was informal, that allowed Syrian women to preach and to evangelize. And I found in my study in this chapter that they did so even to the men that they met, whether they met them inside the homes or they met them out on the streets. They felt empowered basically to, you know, to preach to anyone um, that they met. And I, I interviewed um, a woman in Beirut who, um, who was an evangelist and accompanied Bible woman in the mid-20th century. And she talked about preaching. She's Protestant. She talked about preaching in a Catholic um, church service you know, up at the pulpit next to the priest. And she said, yes, I preached. So um, although this was a little bit later than the period that I was studying, I suspect that the, um, the Bible women had the, the same understanding of what they were doing, um, that, they were, that they were preaching. And I found a little bit of evidence that in the absence of any male religious leaders, that sometimes Bible women would lead worship in the home or even in the church, um, maybe in dire circumstances, but probably this was happening more often than it was actually um, reported. 
And so they really were preaching and evangelizing outside the church, and um, at least, and often beyond the oversight of missionaries and of Syrian male pastors and evangelists. Um, so while these Bible women are really the most marginal, and it is most difficult to find um, records, at least in their own words of what they were doing, um, untranslated by missionaries, they're really the most marginal. I think that they also, because of that marginality, had more freedom um, once they once they were empowered to preach and to teach the Bible, um, to, I think, to enact religious change. Um, and so I, I credit them really for ensuring the survival of the Protestant church, um, particularly after um, some, some, some major violence in the 1960s where um, Protestants were refugees and the churches were really in disarray. Many of the men had been killed. And so I think at that point, the Syrian Bible women's movement um, really allowed the church to survive. And there's a lot of work that they, um, that they did that was you know, um, unseen and unrecognized, but really has ensured the, the survival of the Protestant church in Syria and Lebanon up to the present. Thank you for um, highlighting um, this amazing woman's contribution to Syrian Protestant Church. And uh, your answers really uh, bring us to our next question, which is about the boundary crossing. So besides identity, another theme found throughout your book is boundary crossing. And this theme becomes clear in Chapter 5. So here you rightly point out women's work for women as a boundary with a double effect First, it opened the way for women's activities, but also drew the closed circle around women. Then you explore how the Bible women crossed the boundary of women's work and how they further crossed the boundaries of domestic spheres, denominations, and even religions. So could you tell us more about the boundary crossing and its shaping of the Syrian Protestant church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my research, I look at encounters and I think that, you know, any encounter, uh, missionary encounter or otherwise, is there's a chance for a boundary crossing there. Um, so I like this this sort of theme or this idea. But I do think, as I was explaining, the Syrian um, Bible women as kind of being the most marginal in terms of the farthest from institutional authority. I think that freedom I was describing actually allowed them to cross boundaries that others couldn't. Um, so um, so for one thing, one reason that these women were um, commissioned in the Middle East and in South Asia and other places is that they could move into women's spaces that were sometimes off limits to men. So in, in much of the Middle East, that was the case, um, that uh, an unrelated male could not come into the home. So an American man or a Syrian Protestant preacher couldn't necessarily visit the home um, you know, of a, um, a Syrian Catholic or a Syrian Orthodox or um or um, Jewish women, or certainly Muslim women. And so these women were actually in, uh, indispensable for crossing that bound, that gendered boundary. Um, it gave them the freedom to become preachers because the men were not at least um, official, you know, in official sort of terms allowed into the homes. Um, but then I think it also gave them the ability to move into traditionally male spaces. So of teaching, of preaching, of theological discourse. I, it was really interesting, the accounts I found um, published in a, a British um, periodical of Bible women debating with um, sheikhs, so, so Muslim leaders, with, um, with priests from Catholic and Orthodox communities in the home. Now, I assume that, that maybe these men are related, and so that's why they're in the home in women's um, spaces. Um, but the Bible women aren't just talking to women. They're like actually having these, these deep theological debates um, with, um, with male religious leaders of other denominations or other religious traditions. Um, somewhat similar to the kinds of debates that the Nahdawi men are having 
in the periodical press. So similar sort of questions, um, but a, a different sort of media in terms of how it was presented. So I think that's, um, the, I found that to be really interesting. And then, as you said, there's the crossing of Christian denominations. So I'm going to, um, to Maronite or other Catholic homes, going to Greek Orthodox um, homes as well. Um, those were open to, to these Protestant missionary women. But also um, in Beirut, especially, there were Jewish communities and there were Bible women who, who focused specifically on those communities. And then throughout the region, Muslim communities, um, these Bible women were able to enter. And because they, they could read and they could write, um, sometimes they were invited to teach Muslim women in their homes, um, you know, to teach them to read, to teach them to write. And, and of course, in Islam, reading the Bible is, you know, is part of the tradition, so it wouldn't necessarily have been prohibited for these women. Um, so some families actually preferred to have the Bible women, Muslim families, come into their home and teach their children to read and write instead of having um, sheikhs. There's a tradition of, of blind sheikhs, so men who are, you know, uh, Muslim men who are scholarly and learned, but they're blind, and so they can come into the home, into women's spaces without being a threat uh, and not be related. Um, but of course, a female who could, um, there, there were sheikhas, so um, very few, but um, uh, Muslim women who were learned and who would go in, in, and teach other women in their homes. So I suspect that some of these families um, viewed the Bible women uh, as a version of the sheikha, and, and as women, they would be more acceptable to come into the home and teach um, the women of the family. So there's that interreligious sort of crossing. Um, I think uh, beyond the Bible women question, you see the Arab and American connections and encounters, um, Syrians wanting Western education and learning, um, you know, French or, or English. And so there's kind of a cultural boundary crossing that's happening at this time um, in the Nahda and also somewhat facilitated by, um, by American missionary presence. Um, you have some of the crossing of religious and, sect uh, and secular boundaries. Um, as we saw in earlier chapters of um, both men and women who were writing, they might write uh, religious pieces for the Protestant presses, and they might write on cultural topics or scientific topics um, for presses that I would call like more secular that aren't so concerned um, about religion. And so the same individual is contributing in different ways to, um, to different currents of the Arab Renaissance. Um, and then the last um, boundary crossing I, I thought of was actually um, like physically moving across boundaries are the transnational connections, because this period in the 19th century also begins a migration out of the Ottoman Empire um, to the Americas and also to Australia, as well as return migration. So in terms of the history of the Arab American community, that begins um, at this time. And some of the early, um, early Arab immigrants to the United States were Protestants or were um, Syrian Christians who had been educated in missionary schools and maybe learned English. And so that gave them the connection um, or gave them uh, sort of a leg up in terms of uh, migrating to the United States. So yes, um, in response to your question, there's a lot of boundary crossing that's happening, and some of it's being done in women's circles by women. And then um, this period is a period of you know, social and religious and political change. And so there's a lot of um, a physical boundary crossing in terms of the ways that um, Europeans and Americans are coming to the Middle East, and Middle Easterners are migrating um, to Europe and, and the Americas. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Omek, for that answer and for um, in your engaging, insightful um, 
kind of introduction to the book and what your research was all about um, in this work, um, Protestant Gender and the Arab Renaissance in the Late Ottoman Empire. Um, we're very grateful for your time today. Um, and kind of in a way to close up this interview, there is a final question that I would like to ask my guests. And that is, um, what are you currently um, working on now? Um, maybe uh, sharing a little, bit, a little bit about your current and future projects and what you hope to work on. Thank you um, so much. Thank you again for this opportunity. It's um, been great to, to think back about my process of writing this book and to talk about it with you um, in the context of the study of world Christianity. Um, so in terms of my current and future work, um, recently I've been writing a little bit more about Middle Eastern Christianity in general and thinking about how the study of Middle Eastern Christianity could be brought into conversation with um, world Christianity studies, which happens sometimes. Um, but there's a lot of work on Middle Eastern Christianity that's going on, you know, outside the bounds of world Christianity conversations. Um, and so my, my, um, it's not my current book project, but one future book project will be um, to explore those interconnections. Um, but right now I am working on a Middle Eastern Christianity book series that's being published by Edinburgh University Press. And I'm the co-editor of the series, um, along with Philip Forness who um, graduated from, from Princeton Seminary as well um, the same year that I did. And so we um, established the series um, last year, and we have um, our first two books that we hope are going to be published um, relatively soon. So more word out on that. Um, so one trajectory of my work is to focus on Middle Eastern Christianity. And then right now, I'm getting ready to start a year of sabbatical research supported by the Louisville Institute um, to work on my next book, which is tentatively titled Imaging Islam, Gender, Race, and American Protestant Encounters with Muslims. And so I've, I've done some of the research for the book already, and I'm hoping to finish up that research and get um, as much of the writing done as I can in this coming year. Um, but that work looks at the influence um, that, that Protestant um, uh, actual images, so um, photographs and, and um, drawings of um, the Islamic world and of Muslims, um, as well as other written reports and um, and things like like fiction that's written about um, Muslims and is sent back um, to English speaking readers in the U.S. or the U.K. Um, but in in this um, particular work, I'm looking at the influence on American Protestant thought about Muslims and specifically how images or constructs of gender and constructs of race are transmitted in um, in Protestant missionary work and um, other Protestant sort of travel narratives and, and fiction about the Islamic world and how that's impacted the way that Americans um, throughout the you know, late 19th century, you know, up to present, think about Islam. And particularly, though, I'm interested in the role that, um, that, that gender plays in the, um, the presentation of uh, what it means to be a Muslim woman or a Muslim man and how, um, how those are often <laughs> critiqued. Um, and then also the way that Muslims are so often racialized in Protestant writing about Islam and how that may um, actually affect the way that Americans think about Muslims today. And I think that that influence is seen not just in contemporary Protestant um, rhetoric about Islam, but actually across the board in the United States, because Protestant thought was so, so formative, um, I think, to, to American culture initially even if it is not um, quite as influential today. And I, so I think that it is important to look at both Protestant thinking about Islam and you know, secular American thought about Islam and see 
um, how much of the current rhetoric can be traced um, to the past images of Islam. And many of these were transmitted back to the U.S. by Protestant missionaries who were often um, the first to introduce American audiences to what it meant to be Muslim or what Islam was. So I'm looking forward to, to getting started on that work. Oh, Professor Omid, those sounds like great projects, and we truly look forward to reading more of your works. And once again, thank you so much for um, coming to this podcast and um, introducing to us about your book. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to, the, to today's episode in which we explore Deanna Womack's Protestants, Gender, and the Arab Renaissance in Late Ottoman Empire, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2019. This is your host, Byung Ho Choi. And Sanyong Lee. And stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity. <laughs>